From Schwartz Media, I'm Rick Morton, and this is Inside RoboDebt, a special series from 7am. RoboDebt should never have made it into the real world, but once it did, its gatekeepers got greedy and turned the scheme on full throttle. Without warning, in late 2016, more than 100,000 people across Australia were swamped by life-altering debts stretching back years. That became a political problem. A scheme politicians thought was a neat and tidy solution to their own ambitions quickly spiralled into a humanitarian disaster. But instead of fix it, the politicians decided to spin it. Against all the evidence, they tried to convince people RoboDebt was working, that it was fair and that it was good. Today, we speak to one of those people whose job was to create this alternate reality. Rochelle Miller, the former media advisor to Human Services Minister Alan Tudge. This is episode four, The Minister's Advisor. It's Thursday, July 13. And a warning, this episode contains discussion of suicide. Rochelle Miller, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I know we've kind of been over some of this territory before, but just to place yourself in the story, you began working with Alan Tudge, who was the Human Services Minister at the time, on the 17th of August 2016? Yes, that's right. I was a former media advisor to Alan Tudge when he was the Minister for Human Services. And my role as a media advisor was effectively to talk him through, these are the main things that I need you to say in this interview. So we we really were the people behind ministers speaking publicly and we were the people who were dictating the messages. Rochelle Miller started in the lumbering human services portfolio at a historically important time. It was an agency that cost the federal budget a lot of money and the coalition, well, they wanted savings. The Liberals and Nationals were desperate for a budget surplus because this, they'd been telling us since Costello, was the key indicator of good economic management. Deliver a surplus, stay in power. That is how they saw it. Oh, look, from day one, the priority within the entire government was budget savings. So obviously Department of Human Services or Services Australia as it is now is responsible, was responsible at the time for about 35% of all government spending. So obviously with a target to achieve budget savings, we were going to have a lot of pressure put on us because obviously we're the ones that spend all the money. Yeah. Well, they were estimating that there was over a about $4 billion worth of overpayments or fraudulent payments paid out between 2010 and 2018, which was kind of largely the period that Labor was in government, Mm. we were obviously going to try and put the pressure on them for their period of that time. It's a win-win because you get to say we're saving money. Yeah. But also this is what Labor didn't do. That's exactly right. We're saying we we care about the integrity of the welfare system. People should be getting what they're entitled to, but not a dollar more, a dollar less. You know, and that that was kind of the narrative that we were pushing at the time. And it was absolutely a key focus from the beginning of my time in that office. So that was the government's motivation. Rochelle Miller's boss, Alan Tudge, however, well, he had a more personal stake in this matter. Tudge was ambitious and... He was stuck in the human services portfolio. 
It was a ministry that was unfashionable, and most coalition politicians actually didn't want anything to do with it. That's because the department was huge and expensive, and there was little room to actually do anything because the policy for various payments, like Social Security and Medicare, well, that sat with other ministers. So when Tudge came to the portfolio, he was looking for a way to be useful, to show he could make human services important to the government's re-election hopes and earn a lot of media attention. To do that in a portfolio that largely runs itself, that required cunning. And was that kind of the sense you got from Alan Tudge? Absolutely. I mean, of course, as soon as I started working for Alan, I sat down with him and said, well, what, what do you want to achieve? I mean, I'm your media advisor. What's your approach to media? Do you want to do a lot of media? Do you want to just do the media that's necessary? You know, And certainly the job of human services minister was viewed within the government as a kind of training ground for future mm. cabinet ministers. So it was that step up for Alan coming from parliamentary secretary into a junior ministry of his own, but he um, was certainly very focused on the next step up to cabinet. And so he was looking to impress his colleagues and, and if Alan's promoted to Cabinet, then, then I'm promoted as well. So around this time, you have to remember, the government was desperate for savings and they wanted to get them from welfare, social services and any payments the government was giving to people. And needless to say, Tudge is overjoyed when he finds out, on being appointed to the ministry, that the vast majority of that $10 billion figure could be found in his department. That was what RoboDebt promised. The coalition announced the acceleration of RoboDebt in the July 2016 election campaign, just a week before the polls. They were returned to power with a wafer-thin majority. Now tonight, tonight, my friends, I can report that based on the advice I have from the party officials, we have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government in the next so by the time Rochelle Miller joins Tudge's office, just a month after the 2016 election, the department says it is ready to pull the trigger on the full-scale monstrosity with zero human oversight. Tudge approves the plan. Now, Rochelle says that she and her minister never had any reason to doubt it was legal. But in any case, it was a catastrophe. At that time, I was being told that the system was working as intended and that if errors are occurring and people are getting debts when they don't think that they have a debt, it was because they were not meeting their mutual obligations. So the head of the media team in the Department of Human Services at the time kept coming back to me and saying, no, that's exactly the way it's, this, is, this program's supposed to be working and all those people need to do is get in touch and show their um, payslips and we can fix that up for them. And, and we did see that happen with a lot of people who, who did get in touch and had their debts cancelled. Let's just call it the summer of RoboDebt. It's late 2016 and all hell breaks loose. Ironically, or otherwise, it's mathematics that again gets the government in trouble. They've gone from a few thousand manually checked debts to a machine that automatically spits out those debts at a rate of 20,000 per week. These are riddled with errors. And soon, people went to the media with their stories. And, at least in independent media, 
they started blowing up. By the 3rd of January 2017, deep in the Christmas New Year quiet period of that summer, former Treasury economist Peter Martin writes a scathing column in the Fairfax Press in which he accused bureaucrats of quote-unquote misapplying the law. He was right, and the column even grabs then-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's attention, who calls Alan Tudge back to the country from London, where he is on holidays, and demands answers. Tudge was myopic, and together with Rochelle Miller, he was determined to turn what he saw as a media crisis into a media opportunity. It needed the crisis media strategy because, as you know, Rick, there's nothing more powerful in the media than somebody, a real person, a talking head, coming out and telling a story. Yep. Yep. You know, somebody sitting there and saying, I've got this debt, I'm a disadvantaged person, and the horrible government has given me this debt notice, and I don't believe I have this debt. So we were sort of having to fight that. And we did notice that these stories were almost entirely appearing in the left-wing media. And we kind of realised that, well, your swing voters and your centrist kind of voters who aren't really engaged with politics day to day aren't reading that sort of media. They're picking up the Daily Telly or maybe seeing a headline on Seven News. So we then developed our narrative and used that media to provide kind of a counter-narrative that balanced the negative media out. And that counter-narrative, of course, was... The government is protecting taxpayer dollars. We are recouping money that Labor just let go. We're using new technology to uncover, you know, fraud and overpayments that before we weren't maybe able to detect. You saw during that period there was a lot of media around that, and we did that intentionally to to try and give that counter-narrative. It's so, like, weird to hear it explained so succinctly. <laughs> but who was furnishing those case studies? It was the department, wasn't it? Department. Yeah, yeah and I was driving the department to provide all of those statistics around. So every single case that w- appeared in the media, we'd instructed the department to make sure that they got immediately in touch with that person to resolve their issues. But we also had statistics on how many, for example, how many of those people who were speaking out in the public actually had legitimate debts, and that's what we're calling it, like actual real debts. And on the analysis we did at the time, it was about 50%. So 50%, even though once they handed over all their information, still did have a debt, 50% their debt was cancelled. So we were kind of using that as a way to sort of say, hey, this program's not perfect, but it's working, and we're putting in places things to improve it. But here's what I don't understand, right? So, you know, on your own analysis, right, it's 50-50. It's a coin toss about someone's been told they've got the right information. And I know that the Mm. Catherine Campbell Mm. approach was, well, all we wanted was for that person to come and get in touch with us, right? That's right. That's right. And you wouldn't have known this at the time, I don't think, but there were briefings or documents in the department where they knew that wasn't true, that they had actually designed the system on the assumption that the people wouldn't get in touch that they would just pay the money. Yeah, I had no idea of that. But you've got to remember that I had a huge amount of pressure on me from my boss to promote the positives that were coming out of his portfolio. I mean, he expected and he used to demand, I want a front page story every week. And it was unrealistic. And and I mean, that was the reason that RoboDebt was really uncovered by us in the first place. When we first put it in the media, I think it was in December or November of... 2016, 
I, because I had found that there was this compliance program that was happening at the time that was bringing in serious amounts of money. I mean, I, I looked at it and my media advisor from the department said to me, oh, look, we've, we've got this little pilot program and it, you know, it seems to be delivering really great results in, in retrieving and recovering debts. And I said, oh, yeah, what do the figures look like? And he said, oh, it's about $4.5 worth of debts owed to the Commonwealth per day. Per day. And that was such an extreme figure that even the minister questioned it, right? We did, straight yeah. away. I was shocked. And, and Alan said to me, look, make sure you go back to the department and double, double check that. That's got to be right. If that's not right, we can't put that in the media. You know, we've got to make sure that this program is working well. And, and we were told that, yeah, I'd been through all these series of pilots, that they'd started the program very small and they were slowly ramping it up and it was going really, really well. It'd been going on for quite some time. I received nothing but assurances from the department that everything was good, all the boxes were ticked, and they were about to ramp it up to full capacity. So we ran that story on the front page, um, you know, of The Australian, the welfare debt squad mm. out to recover however much it was, $4 billion a year or, or $4 billion over, you know, eight yes. years. Yep. And that's again, goes back to that, the approach you can take as a minister. You can go low profile. Yep. Or you can go high profile. And when you're demanding a front page story every week and we're desperately pressuring the department and you heard the department talk about the pressure they were under to find those budget savings and to put in place new initiatives to promote the work the government was doing. And that was me pressuring constantly, what else are we doing? What else can I give to the media? And that was all because effectively, Alan wanted to be seen to be doing a good job in supporting the initiatives of the government. And for a while there, that's exactly how he was seen. We will find you, we will track you down, and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. During the time that I worked for him, he regularly received text messages from his colleagues, you know, well done, mate, another front page story. You know, he's starting to build his profile as a good operator. Everybody was just drinking the Kool-Aid, you know. Everybody was telling the minister and telling me what we wanted to hear. By the sounds of the conversation, there was an acknowledgement yeah. that there might be incorrect information used to raise a debt, but mm. perhaps not any telegraphing yourself into someone's shoes saying, well, actually, how would that feel to be told that I owe something that might be incorrect? And, you know, that's not a legal question, that's a moral question. Like, how do you feel about that? If that's happened even once, is that a good thing? I actually think empathy makes for a much better media advisor, but it makes the job much harder for you. And I, at the time, didn't have the same levels of empathy for people who were disadvantaged than I do now. Yeah. And and that is because I've been through my own, you know, mental health battles and I've sort of reflected on that and said, well, imagine if I was... You know, in this situation I'm in now with very severe mental health condition and I get a debt letter. Yeah. And I don't have the support of a family and money around me. You know, that's that's a, an absolutely big deal. And that, of course, is why I immediately got in touch with the Royal Commission and mm -hmm. said, look, I think I've got something to say. I think we should learn from this experience. And that's why, you know, I obviously did it. We'll be back after this. 
As a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. The federal government is refusing to scrap its controversial Centrelink debt recovery system despite a growing public backlash. The ombudsman... well, meanwhile, the federal government minister responsible for the controversial new Centrelink debt recovery push has finally broken his silence to defend the system. The human services minister denies the attempt to claw back overpayments is flawed. He says the government... We are not going to scrap the welfare compliance system as the Labor Party suggests. Our welfare compliance system is working. So we're now into the depths of the summer of robo-debt and Alan Tudge is the minister responsible. He's in charge of human services and people are in the media saying, we don't owe these debts, something has gone horribly wrong. And rather than respond to this problem as the policy issue that it is, Tudge sees it as purely a media problem. And the best way to deal with a media problem is to shut the story down. Now, the thing about Tudge that brought him to the particular attention of the Robodet Royal Commission is that his office went further than almost anyone else has before in their attempts to completely erase this story from the headlines. They took the personal information of people who had complained about their settling debts and they released it to the media. Now, Rochelle says at the time it was an incredibly simple process to plant these stories to counter the critical attention that Robodet was getting because she just had to look to her favourite journalists. I mean, I had journalists coming from those types of media outlets who were effectively just recut the statistics and give us a new stat on how many people you're catching and that's a front-page story for us. Yep. Can you give us a bit of colour? Can you tell us if they're male or female? Can you tell us if they're old or, or young? Can you, you know, it was constant pushing for to put that colour around the cheaters, you know, that narrative assisted us at the time because it became a kind of perception that, oh, well, those people who are whinging in the media, they've probably just got a debt and they just don't like it. Hmm. And because the minister had a file, right, in his office of every person that complained? Yes. And, And that was predominantly because he wanted to make sure that those people, the department was getting in touch with those people and those people were having their cases sorted out. And he wanted to see it for himself, right? Yeah, yep. and, and he was very much like that, very much a hands-on micromanager. Yeah. Uh, it created a culture around him where everybody just said yes, and that is a real problem. I saw that a lot towards the final years where I was in government advising ministers where you've got these very, very young people who really you can't call advisors. They were effectively gophers, you know. They did everything the minister said, And I used to push my boundaries a lot with Alan, you know, but I just got very, very quickly put back in my box. Uh, So I learned pretty quickly that it was a lot easier to just accept everything he was saying, even if it was completely unreasonable, because it was just easier to get through that way. And I was, of course, you know, really worried about keeping my job. Yeah. 
did you get the sense that, you know, to the extent that Alan did care about the problem, i.e. getting the files brought up, making sure the department's actually getting in contact with these people, mm. did you get the sense that he cared about the people or that he was just fixing a media problem for him? Oh, I, definitely it was fixing a media problem. You know, putting yourself in people's shoes when you work in human services should be the first thing you do when you come into that portfolio. Instead, we were pressuring the department to save money. And I think that effectively is how how a culture was built, both in the ministerial office that then was reflected in the department, because the department tries to service a minister's office. And I think in this occasion, the influence was very strong from our office. In one of the most egregious examples of how the minister weaponised Centrelink recipients' own details against them was in the case of Rhys Corso. He was a young man, an artist, you'd all be familiar with him by now. He was living in Melbourne, trying to build a life for himself. And he killed himself in January of 2016 after receiving a mountain of debt notices generated by one of the very early iterations of RoboDebt. Now, the case was reported in the Saturday paper and immediately messages began flying in the minister's office. And from the Royal Commission, we know that Alan Tudge requested the details of Reese's case and that Rochelle Miller, infamously now, I would say, um, emailed her, her boss and her colleagues to say, you know, what a great start to the weekend because they thought this was a shocking beat-up. Of course, it wasn't. It was a robo-debt. And all of that reporting has now been vindicated, but that didn't stop them at the time. And Rochelle Miller was there in Tudge's office as it looked to retaliate. Look, I have a lot of things that I'm self-reflecting on at the moment. (laughs) And certainly I know at the time I lacked an understanding and empathy for the barriers that are in place for people like Reese, And instead at the time I tried to look at every reason why that journo was wrong. I think I texted and somebody and said, look, it's a disgraceful piece of reporting. I mean, we, we kind of sat there and thought, well, there was obviously a lot of other things that were going wrong in Reese's life at the time. I think that's how we justified it. We kind of went, oh, well, he got a debt notice, yes, but there was obviously a lot of other things that contributed to his ultimate decision to suicide, which is absolutely tragic. And, you know, I kind of view it now and I look at it, that that letter was probably that straw that that just became too much. I mean, when you're getting a letter from what would be perceived to be a very powerful organisation like Centrelink, you know, you sort of equate them to the police. And, in fact, at the time we were promoting how we were using also using the police to crack down on welfare fraud. So I think for somebody like Reese, that would have been very devastating. And I can completely see that now, but then I don't think any of us had enough empathy. No, and, and like, I mean, and again, I've done things in my own career that I'm ashamed of, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I do think, you know, when you get to the point where you're arguing about a technicality over someone who's killed themselves, like, how do you... It is kind of out of perspective, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like it's wild <laughs> just now listening to that 
And I know that you're thinking backwards in time to what you were doing at the time. Yeah. And then trying to think about how I feel about it now. And, you know, I I sat in the RoboDebt Royal Commission. I gave evidence. Thank you. Take a seat. Yes, Mr. Brewer. Yes, thank you, Commissioner. Um, can you tell the Commission your full name, please? Rochelle Jane Miller. Um, Ms. Miller, were you served with a notice to give a statement and produce documents dated 22 December? I knew at the time that I was getting completely smashed by people on Twitter saying that I was a heartless, horrible person that had no empathy. What I was trying to do, and what we do a lot in media, is just say what I needed to say in that room and then deal with my emotions later. And I, after 10 years of being in politics and the sort of treatment that I got from Alan and others, I'm very good at separating what I need to do from how I feel about this. Yeah. I'm still having problems acknowledging the trauma that I've been through. I'm not proud of what we did, but we did have a lot less information back when we were making these decisions than what we than what we see now. And I still take responsibility for what we did. Even when you're in the trenches, you still need to have a way, and ministers particularly need to find a way in which they can put themselves in other people's shoes, particularly the people that they're creating policy for. And and that's really what I wanted to say because we didn't do that anywhere near well enough. It was really just about we've got to kill this story yeah. because it's damaging the government. Well, I mean, and it worked at the time and it almost worked forever. Well, well, that's right. It worked at the time and, um, you know, and then Alan, of course, was moved into other portfolios and promoted and... I left politics. Rochelle Miller alleges she was in an abusive relationship with Alan Tudge at the time of these events. But she also says the atmosphere in the office, more generally, in the workplace, was abusive. And she says that this environment meant that it was really hard to see with any moral clarity, with empathy, what was actually playing out around her, and particularly her role in it. Alan Tudge continues to strenuously deny the allegations of an abusive relationship. He wasn't asked about it at the Royal Commission, but he was asked about the culture in his office. And uh, did that insensitivity reflect the mindset or culture within your office that really this system was catching people who owed debts and people who were getting caught were... Um, no, I don't. I don't accept that. That was the culture um, that was put in my office at all. Um, I mean, this was a this was a tragic case. So I, I broadly remember this case. Um, like when we talk about this stuff, it's like, what are we really doing here? We're trading information for power, and we're funneling information for power for someone's ego, essentially, at the end of the day. And that information is about real people. Again, like, you know, I'm sure you've thought about it, but, like, do you really, mm. do you really kind of, does it keep you up at night or is this something you want to come back to? It does bother me 
one of the really difficult things about thinking about how traumatic the robo-debt program was for people is that it was also extremely traumatic for me. It was one of the main reasons why I'm at the moment not working and I have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, the list goes on. Rochelle eventually left politics and went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, otherwise known as PwC. Now, curiously, PwC has a small but notorious role to play in the story of RoboDebt. Now, as the complaints about this scheme mounted and the media attention started to really, really bite, and the department realised they might have to do something to try and get this back on the rails, really, they hired PwC via Catherine Campbell, the secretary, with Tudge's approval to look into what was happening and to try and come up with a roadmap to do it better, to reconfigure the whole thing, and maybe they could get those budget savings after all. They went to PwC to get that so-called independent advice, and PwC dutifully did the investigation, and they wrote a 100-page report. Suddenly, there was some kind of arrangement where the Department of Human Services said to PwC, actually... We don't want that report. We don't want to have seen it. The report, by the way, cost $1 million. Did you ever find out what happened to the report while you were there? I was told that the report was not delivered to the government. Yeah. And I didn't ask any more questions, but I very desperately wanted to see that report. And I note, I don't think anybody has yet seen that report. Rochelle admits, as many suspected, that referring something like rubber debt or any other media issue to external consultants for a report was really just a media solution. It wasn't a genuine search for answers. It was a holding strategy. PwC served its purpose for me at the time as a media advisor because I could say it was a holding line for Alan. We've referred this to the experts at PwC. Effectively, you're buying... You're buying the brand. You're buying the name of PwC to deflect from any other questioning. We've got the experts in. It, It will all be sorted. Don't you worry about it. Now, looking back on everything, Rochelle really struggles with the part that she played in Robodip and her role in Alan Tudge's office. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. For her, the Royal Commission was this searing microscope into the conduct of her workplace, but also her own conduct. And I think that self-reflection is important because coming forward to give that evidence was not easy. And I remember watching it unfold on the day when she was on the stand and thinking, geez, this is not good. You, You do not come out of this looking good. It's unedifying for everyone involved. What I really wanted to know from Rochelle was whether she managed to sit through any of the other testimony, like Jenny Miller, Reese's mum, given her own role that she played in all of this, and whether that stirred something in her or or not. Did you manage to, to sit through any of the... Like any of Jenny Miller's testimony, any of the victims? Yes. Yeah, yeah and that was why I immediately just got on my email and said, OK, I've, I should speak to you about about what actually happened behind the scenes here because it's a tragedy and for some people they'll never, ever get over it. 
when I came into human services and I was told by a minister that I'm seeking as much media publicity as I can get so I can promote myself to get into Cabinet, really it should have been I'm looking at ways in which I can help the most disadvantaged people in our society. Rochelle Miller, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. That's all right. You're welcome. In tomorrow's episode, you will hear from Jenny Miller, the mother of Reese Corso, talking about her search for truth and what answers the Royal Commission has managed to bring her. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes.